0: This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. And now it's time for our regular series, The Backstory, about the names and brands that we all know, but whose backstories we don't. Our own Alex Cortez brings us today's story. My
1: cousin, Paul, used to like to say that we're in the business of defending the world from bland food, you
2: know? Want to take a guess what this guy's product is? Well, I'm not going to tell you yet, but I'll tell you this. Its origin dates far back before this guy was a twinkle in his mama's eye and with another guy named Edmund.
1: Great-great-grandfather was born in Hagerstown, Maryland in 1815, and We don't know a lot about his young life, but we know that he had found his way to New Orleans by the early 1840s, and he became a banker. He was a successful banker, and he ended up buying five branches of the Bank of Louisiana from the bank and becoming an independent banker. And as he traveled around to his various branches, he became friends with Daniel Avery, who was here at Avery Island,
2: the very same island about two and a half hours outside of New Orleans, where I interviewed this guy.
1: And when Daniel Avery's daughter, Mary Eliza, turned 20, his 40-year-old friend announced to him that he was actually secretly in love with Mary Eliza and wanted to marry her. It didn't go over too well. But um, because Edmund had been a bachelor, he'd never been married. Mary Eliza imposed on her father and got him to agree to let her marry Edmund. So they married just before the Civil War, but he lost everything in the war. His banks were gone, he was destitute, and he was forced to live here at Avery Island in his father-in-law's home.
2: And it's rumored that about the same time, an unknown man walked up to Edmund one day, handed him some seeds, and simply told him, try these, this is a very hot pepper. And so he did, supposedly. He definitely did plant some unknown seeds around then, believed to be from Mexico or Central America. But then he was forced to flee that land too. And this pepper plant was probably about the last thing on his mind.
1: They discovered that the reason Avery Island is pushed up through the marsh is there's a giant mountain of salt underneath it. Well, at that point, salt was a valuable commodity. I mean, it was huge to preserve food, and it was being blockaded uh, from the south. So they sent in groups from the various states around the Confederacy to mine the salt. And as soon as the Union realized that there was a source for salt, they sent in a troop to occupy Avery Island and prevent the mining of the salt. So the family left Avery Island during the Civil War. When they came back at the end of the Civil War, Edmund's diary tells us he found one of his pepper plants growing at the side of the chicken coop. And every plant we plant today comes from that plant.
2: And this pepper's product? The world now knows as McElhenney's Tabasco. This red wonder of the world that prevents blandness from ever thinking about entering our day. And Tony Simmons, who we've been hearing from, is the former CEO of McElhinney's and a member of the family. And their family's hot sauce brand is so legendary that many of us don't dare utter the word hot sauce without even thinking about it. We use their trademark instead. Tabasco.
1: We're not actually sure why he named it Tabasco. There's are stories, but we don't know for certain why he settled on the name Tabasco.
2: The sauce with a mysterious name from the mysterious seed became synonymous with the category.
1: We employ a doctor of history, Dr. Shane Bernard, our historian, and he does a really good job of trying to keep the truth and the family stories separated. and He cannot find any primary source evidence that tells us
2: where he actually got the seeds. The mysteries remain. Nevertheless, Edmund McElhaney began this thing called Tabasco with only he and his plate of food in mind. He was making Tabasco
1: for himself And his family encouraged him as he would travel to New Orleans to try to find work to take product and sell it, so he did. And by 1868, it had become enough of a commercial success that he decided it made sense to start the company. So in 1868, he started McElhinney Company. So we're celebrating our 150th year in business as a family company. But it started as a cottage industry. You know, Mm -hmm. it started just making it in a spare building uh, close to the family residence here on Avery Brown.
2: An island that the McElhaney family now 100% owns, but whose product goes far out from it, even in those early days. Well, we know
1: it was traveling around the world because we have a letter in our archives from an English soldier who was serving in India in the 1880s. And he wrote a letter to his mother in the UK telling her that he had just had this wonderful product made in America called Tabasco. And if she could find some in the grocery, would she buy it and send him some? And by the way, she might wanna buy some for herself as well. So we know we were making our way around the world by the 1880s and now we ship to over 185 countries. And we bottle in 22 languages and dialects. And we do all that here at Avery Island. Every bottle of Tabasco in the world is made here at Avery Island.
0: And you're listening to Tony Simmons, the former CEO of McElhaney's Tabasco. And it's a fifth generation family business. We love these stories. The Steinway story is so similar in so many ways. And we love featuring these businesses that get passed down from generation to generation. 1868, they started, or he started. And it was 150 years later that we're still talking about a product that gets shipped to 185 countries and in 22 languages. When we come back, more of the backstory the backstory of McElhaney's Tabasco with former CEO Tony Simmons here on Our American Story. We continue with our American stories and with Tony Simmons, who's bringing us the backstory of his family business that he was the fifth generation CEO of, and that's McElhinney's Tabasco. Let's get back to Tony on how they make this Tabasco thing. About six weeks ago, we started planting
1: seeds in our greenhouse. Mid-April, We'll transplant those little plants to our fields here on Avery Island and we'll grow them out all summer. In the fall, depending on how much sun we get, how much rain we get, sometime between mid-August and the end of September, we'll harvest peppers. And we pick certain plants to harvest just for the seeds. And then we take those seeds and we send them to our growers in Central and South America. Most of them are small farmers, like in Honduras. I think we got about 400 small farmers growing for us. We're actually growing in Central America, South America, and Africa. And the main reason is we think the pepper actually came from Central America, probably from the Andes or the Amazon Valley somewhere, Colombia, Peru. When you look at our pepper plant, you'll see green pepper, you'll see yellow pepper, you'll see orange pepper, red pepper, and bright red pepper. The only way I have to control the color of the product is only to pick the reddest, ripest pepper. So you go back through the fields over and over and over again, only picking the reddest, ripest pepper and leaving the rest of the pepper on the bush. So it's a very labor-intensive process to pick uh, tabasco peppers, and so far uh, we haven't been successful with creating a mechanical harvester that's commercially viable. We're close, and we're working on it. We've been working on it for a number of years, but at this point, all Tabasco peppers still needs to be picked by hand. They grind the peppers into a mash, and then they ship those ground up peppers back to us, and we put them in oak barrels, and we age that pepper for up to three years. And then we make Tabasco with it by mixing a certain amount of mash with vinegar in 2,000 gallon mixing tanks. And then we, when we drain it, we strain most of the pepper solids out, and then we make a final product. So from the time we plant a seed here on Avery Island to grow seed pepper, for our growers until the time we put it in the bottle and ship it, it's about a five-year process for us to
2: make Tabasco. And unlike a lot of CEOs, the process is so important to Tony that he makes it a priority to personally be a part of it every day that he possibly can.
1: At nine o'clock in the morning, if I'm here, I go down to the blending area And they'll have up to 96 barrels of mash out for me to look at. If I'm not there by 9.15, they can start doing the processing to mix it because they don't know what my schedule is. So they don't know when I'm on the island and when I'm not on the island. So they they have to assume every day I'm gonna be there. But I travel, so I can't be there every morning. Now, we have quality control people that check as well. Every batch gets checked. But the main reason I do it is to impress upon every single employee we have that if it's worth the CEO's time to go down there every morning and make sure this is right before we make Tabasco, nothing we do is more important than making sure that the product's right every single time. Every time. It's got to be right. you know. And that's the main reason I do it, not because my guys don't know how to check it. It's very rare for me to reject a barrel of mash. Very, as a matter of fact, in the last year, I think I've rejected one barrel of mash. And I was kind of surprised that they put it out, really, you know, because it just smelled terrible. I and mean, we're not making Tabasco with this.
2: Tony had the tall task of protecting a family legacy against the huge headwinds that family businesses face. of family-owned businesses fail in the second generation, and by the third generation, 88% will have failed.
1: Fourth generation is, they say, probably between two and 4% will survive a fourth generation.
2: McElhinney's is in its fifth generation. There's no statistics for that. They might be too small to measure. So how do they keep keeping it alive? and growing it. It starts with remembering the big shoes they have to fill. You've heard about the patriarch, Edmund. Just wait until you meet his son.
1: John uh, was the eldest son. And when Edmund McElhinney died in 1890, John took over the company, but he resigned in 1898 so he could join Theodore Roosevelt and become a rough rider which he did.
2: The Rough Riders fought in Cuba's War of Independence from Spain, with then Assistant Secretary of the Navy, Theodore Roosevelt, as their second in command. This all-volunteer cavalry was made up of all sorts, from cowboys to college athletes, ranchers, miners, and a man who made Tabasco for a living.
1: And actually rose to being a lieutenant in the Rough Riders, And he remained lifelong friends with Theodore Roosevelt. But when he left in 1898, E.A. McElhinney,
2: his younger brother,
1: was just returning from Point Barrow, Alaska, and took over as president of the company. E.A. McElhinney was an Arctic explorer, was very much of a conservationist, a botanist. In 1895, He recognized that the snowy egret was being hunted to extinction, and he went out around the marshes of Avery Island, and he captured seven or eight snowy egrets. He built an aviary for them.
2: A large enclosed space where they could live and breed safely.
1: And then let them breed their young and hatch out. And when the young were old enough to fly and to migrate, he let them go, and we get Thousands and thousands of snowy egrets had come back to Avery Island every year to nest from those original birds that EA caught. They came back because they were able to patch their young here and do it safely. And then EA actually created a bird sanctuary. This was one of the first bird sanctuaries in the United States. So the birds were protected. They couldn't be hunted here as long as they could get themselves onto Avery Island. But a lot of our approach to how we take care of Avery Island comes from EA. He was a conservationist before anybody knew what a conservationist was. And people kind of wonder about it a little bit because he was so interested in birds and protecting birds and helping wildlife, but he also liked to hunt. He has some ponds he built uh, just to the north of Avery Island that we still shoot ducks on today. When he built those ponds, there were no limits. But if EA invited you to hunt on his ponds with him, you could shoot all the ducks you wanted to shoot with one box of shells. You could take 25 shells with you, and however many ducks you could kill with your 25 shells, that was your limit. And he was doing that when there was no limit, just as his concept of conservation uh, in, in hunting. So in some ways he was way ahead of his time, and he instilled in us the concept of don't waste be conservative in everything you do because your resources are limited and you need to make sure you you pay attention so as we harvested the resources that were available to us on avery island our motto our approach has always been if you're going to do something that disrupts this environment we want you to put it back as close as possible that it can be put back at the end to leave the land as good or better than you found it. You know, when conservation and sustainability became a big corporate initiative, we didn't really have to make it a corporate initiative. It's been a corporate initiative here for over a hundred years.
2: And just wait until you meet EA's nephew. Next segment.
1: John's son, Walter, who was a member of the United States Marine Corps Reserve, and had served in the Pacific in the Second World War, took over the company. And Walter had received a Navy Cross, a Silver Star,
0: and a Purple Heart
1: at Guadalcanal.
0: And you've been listening to Tony Simmons, former CEO of McElhinney's Tabasco. You're listening to the backstory. And my goodness, what he was saying about Intergenerational family businesses is so true. 70% fail in the second generation, 88% in the third, and 95 plus fail in the fourth. And this is a fifth generation family business and continuing to thrive. The remarkable story. The backstory continues. The McElhaney Tabasco story continues too here on Our American Story. And we continue with Our American Stories and with Tony Simmons, and he's the former CEO of McElhinney's Tabasco. And we're bringing you the backstory of this remarkable company and a product we all know and we all use. Let's get back to Tony on their fourth family member to run the company, Walter McElhinney.
1: Walter, when I was a boy, at his fireplace had a helmet next to it. And that helmet had a dent in it. And on his, one of his tables, he had a samurai sword, a Japanese samurai sword. And he told us that when he was on Guadalcanal...
2: For the infamous battle with the Japanese there in World War II. He was coming up
1: over a ridge and he surprised a Japanese squad and the officer, seeing Walter, swung... His sword. He didn't even take it out of the scab, he just swung the sword at Walter's helmet. Walter said as he was swinging the sword, I was pulling my firearm and I shot him, but he hit me before I could finish shooting him. So they had to lower him back down the cliff in a basket to evacuate him, but his guys put the sword and the helmet with him. So he had those souvenirs from the encounter. But then they dropped a basket on the way down the cliff.
2: Just to make sure that you got all that, that basket that they accidentally dropped off the cliff? Yep, it had Walter in it.
1: But Walter also, he was hit with a machine gun wound on Guadalcanal. And he was sent back to Australia to recuperate after he was injured on Guadalcanal.
2: And after the war, to cure himself of the understandable fear of heights that he contracted, Walter hunted mountain goats.
1: He used to tell the story that his orders, when he was discharged from the hospital in Australia, his orders were to return to the United States. But he didn't want to go back to the United States, he wanted to go back to his squad and he told a story about how he hopscotched his way back to his unit. And when he got back to his unit and reported into his CO, his CO said, give me your orders. And he said, I lost them. And he said, no, you didn't give me your orders. And he said, when he handed him his orders, he said, the orders say, you're supposed to go back to the United States. You're not supposed to be here. And he said, I don't want to go back to the United States. I want to fight. And Anyway, he ended up getting to go back
2: to his unit. He was a pretty amazing man. And when Walter was in the foreign country of Australia, he did get to see someone who wasn't so foreign.
1: He greets his godmother, First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt, on her Goodwill tour to Australia in September of 1943. Uh, Theodore Roosevelt was actually Walter's brother, Jack's godfather.
2: And this intertwining of familial and national histories Has led to a deep appreciation of Theodore Roosevelt in Tony, and especially for his speech, "The Man in the Arena." It's a wonderful thing. That's right. It's not the critic
1: who counts. You know, it's just one of the greatest quotes ever. It's just, you know where you know where he made that speech, don't you? He, He gave that speech at the Sobans in France because. He was very concerned about elitism, that people may look down
2: on the working man. And Tony proceeded to read the most famous passage of this speech. It's not the critic who counts,
1: not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. the triumph of high achievement, and at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. I got a framed copy of it, Alex. (laughs) You know, I do.
2: Oh, man, you're almost crying.
1: Oh, I'm telling you, it's just, you know, to tear you up thinking about what the man did. I mean, he's just amazing. You know, he also, we have copies of his correspondence to John McElhinney to go on the bear hunt in Mississippi or Arkansas, and John actually attended that hunt. And they couldn't find a bear for the president to shoot, so they tied a bear to the tree, they found a sickly bear, tied it, and they went and got the president, brought him over so he could kill the bear, and he refused to kill the bear. And when that the press got that story, they named it Teddy's Bear, and that's where the teddy bear came from.
2: Now you probably didn't expect to learn that in a story about Tabasco sauce, now did you? And closer to home, Tony was very blessed that this Uncle Walter was very much a part of his life.
1: Walter stayed in the Marine Corps Reserve. He retired as a Brigadier General. And I can tell you from knowing him very well as a young boy, he really liked being referred to as General McElhenney, <laughs> he liked that a lot. But Walter was a great man, he was a lot of fun. And he used to invite his young cousins like me to stay with him in the summer. It was great, I mean, you had a formal dinner every night, you sat and, you know, You, I was part of what I would call the people who take their shower when they come home from work, not before they go to work, because I was working either for my grandmother or working for Macklin Company in the summer, so when I'd get off in the afternoon, I'd go home and clean up, because I had to be dressed for dinner. Now, we didn't wear a tie, but I had to wear, you know, a clean shirt after working in the field, so. But every night, except on the weekends, but for each of the, the weeknights, when I was a boy in the 60s, at 6 o'clock, Walters Butler Mr. Willie would announce dinner, And he and I would walk in, and he'd sit at one end of the table, and I'd sit at the other end of the table. And Mr. Willie would would serve us dinner, you know? I mean, it was very old school, but that was Walter.
2: And besides their family's legacy of giants to look up to, Tony credits his family's legacy of their kids doing hard labor on the island, for why the family business is still going strong in its fifth generation and with sixth generation members rising through the ranks. The family philosophy has
1: sort of been idle hands or the devil's workshop. So one of the things that we do, Alex, is that we invite our young family members to come to work for us in high school and in college for the summer and it allows them to experience what it's like to work here. Honestly, we give them the worst jobs in the place. We do, we absolutely give them the worst jobs in the place and we tell them that they're gonna be held to a higher standard than the other summer help, because we'll hire, every summer we hire a bunch of employees, kids, to do extra work around Avery Island. And you know, we tell our family, when you come to work here as a family member, you will be held to a higher standard even if they can goof off a little bit and get away with it, you can't, you can't because you're a family.
0: And you're listening to fifth generation family member and former CEO of Macalini's Tabasco, Tony Simmons. And my goodness, putting the kids to work like that and holding them to a higher standard. Well, it's just good old common sense and it's not that common anymore. Uh, It's hard enough to find people getting their kids working at the age of 14 or 15 or 16 these days. But to make them work, make them do the worst jobs, and then hold them to a higher standard, well, boy, you'd just be, well, maybe you'd have the Division of Youth and Services sicked after you today. When we come back, more of the remarkable story of the McElhaney Tabasco family business, fifth generation, still going strong, still making bland food taste great. The backstory continues here on Our American Stories. And we continue here with Our American Stories and with Tony Simmons, who's bringing us the backstory of his own family business that's now been running strong for over five generations. And again, he was the former CEO of McElhinney's Tabasco. Let's return to Tony on one of the trials that they faced in his lifetime. Everybody remembers
1: Hurricane Katrina because it devastated New Orleans so bad. Hurricane Katrina was not an event at Avery Island because we were farther enough west to where we weren't impacted by the storm. But two weeks after Hurricane Katrina, Hurricane Rita came through the western part of Louisiana and we had eight feet, two inches of water at the plant. And the plant floor is at eight feet, six inches. So we had four inches left before we would have had water in a food plant. And we'd have been closed for months and months to clean up before we would've been back in operation.
2: They were still forced to close for six working days, which is no small matter for a business trying to care for its families.
1: So after that, we decided to build a protection system around the plant to increase that protection up to 18 feet, six inches. We're almost 14 miles in from the coast here, so We think 18 feet, six inches is a good number. Rita was one of the worst, it was the worst water this area has ever seen in anybody's memory. And it only got to eight feet, two inches. So we now have protection to 18 feet, six inches.
2: But this fortification came at a price, a literal price in dollars and an emotional price in desire.
1: We were going to put a museum in New Orleans and an office over the museum. And we took the money we had dedicated for that project, and instead we built the levee. And then we had to assume we were going to lose electricity in that case. So we put in a standby power generation system with twin 750 kW generators and a 10,000-gallon diesel fuel tank to run them. Either pump is supposed to be capable of keeping the facility dry, and either generator is capable of running both pumps at once. So Murphy's Law, whatever can go wrong will go wrong at the worst possible time. So we have 100% redundancy on our system to try to make sure we don't flood
2: ourselves. This shows just how difficult business can be Even 150 years into it, but time and time again, McElhaney's has found strength in one very deep reservoir.
1: We have a very stable workforce, which it also helps the company as well. When I first got here in 2000, we did an award ceremony to award people for their years of service. And I think we had 201 or 202 employees at the time. And I totaled up their years of service, and it came out to like 2,165 years of service over those 200 employees. So, you know, we have a very stable workforce that has a lot of institutional knowledge about what we do and how we do it. And that's, that serves us an absolutely good step. We can't compete against the oil field when it comes to wages. When, when the oil field is really going, when things are good in the oil field, they pay way more money than we can afford to pay as a food manufacturer. But a lot of our employees who would be able to get those jobs choose not to do so for a couple of reasons. One is we, we offer a very competitive package of benefits, so their health care coverage, that type of thing is going to be equal. What we don't offer is that hourly wage that they could make, but to some extent that hourly wage, also a lot of our oil and gas business here is offshore, which means they have to be away from their families for extended periods of time. And, as you've seen in the last few years, when the oil industry is bad, it's very bad, and we don't lay people off, we don't have large reductions of force. So people that work for us tend to know that you know I can make a good living, uh, I can be home with my family every night, I can get a good benefit package, and I won't make as much as I'll make in the oil field, but you know what, I'm not going to be laid off either. So. Uh, you know, So it makes a difference. It makes a difference, and that's how we're able to keep really good people working for us.
2: And what also leads employees to want to stay with McElhaney's is that almost every time there's a job opening, there's an opportunity to move up. First we post
1: internally, and our own employees can post for the job. If we have a job open for a line leader and four people uh, post for it, we put together a team to interview those people that consist of the HR manager, the person in charge of that area, and three people that will have to work with that person on that line, actually work for that person. They interview those candidates. They vote. They can vote and none of them are a good candidate, that we need to go outside, we need to expand, we don't think any of these people are qualified. But the three people that have to work for them vote first. If they're unanimous on a candidate, that person gets the job. The supervisor and the HR person don't get to vote until after those, our employees know that. But what happens is, we'll fill a line leader position. Then that would probably be filled from somebody who's a partner operator or doing something. Now that position becomes available. So what happens is almost every job in the company ends up, everybody moves up one after another, just step in, and the only opening to the outside world ends up being at the lowest rung, and usually that's a part-time employee who applies for a full-time position and they get that, and now we, we hire a new part-time person. And it works very well. It's good for morale because people know you can't just get promoted because you kiss somebody's patoot. That, you know, the people that you're going to have to work with and that know the lay of the land, they're going to get to have a say-so in whether or not you get the job. It's been a great way for us to have good esprit de corps. People know the system. They know how you get promoted here. They also know that the people that work for us are going to get a first shot at the openings.
2: And they also know that they can live at their place of work, this tiny two-mile-wide Avery Island, if they want to. I've been holding that little pristine pearl of quaintness back from you this whole story. Out of McElhaney's 200 employees, around half of them freely decide to live on Avery Island with Tony and his family.
1: Well, we had to have housing on Avery Island for our workers because the closest city, to Iberia, is seven miles away. And that's too far for people to come and go to work when you go to work on a horse. So we built housing here at Avery Island so we could have workers and them have a place to live. And McElhinney Company still owns about 60 houses on Avery Island that we lease to our employees. and. We have about 180 people, I think, that live on Avery Island. Most of them are employees and the family of employees who work for us. And that is a legacy from when we needed to have housing on Avery Island in order to have a workforce. Now, most of the people who live on Avery Island that work for us do it either because they're young and they're trying to save up money so that they can buy a home, or they grew up here and just want to live here, or they have small children and they enjoy having the freedom those children can have on Avery Island they can't have in a city or somewhere else because it's pretty hard for a kid to get in too much trouble on Avery Island. You know, if if you live in our housing, we have a big playground they can go play on. They, They get a lot of freedom. There's a little store. Everybody knows each other. Everybody knows who everybody's kids are. So everybody's kind of watching out for everybody else. And in, and even though there is traffic on and off the island, it, in some ways it's a gated community because we do monitor who comes and goes off the island. So, you know, children can have a lot more freedom here than they can have in some other places, especially if they move here and the kids get used to that kind of freedom, then the kids don't want to leave anyway. So, But it's very quiet. You can't even get a pizza delivered to Avery Island. You can maybe get one delivered to Avery Allen at the toll gate. They might be willing to bring a
0: pizza there, but that's about it. And great job, as always, to Alex Cortez, and a special thanks to Tony Simmons, the former CEO of McElhinney's Tabasco. And my goodness, they're in the business of defending the world against bland food. I love that as a mission statement for a company. And my goodness, they've been doing it for a really long time. Again, those statistics, I've got to hit you with them one more time. Second-generation businesses fail at the rate of 70%. Third-generation business at the rate of 88%. And over 95% by the fourth-generation fail. And these guys, these folks at McElhinney, fifth-generation going strong and still changing the world and changing our palates. By the way, if you have a local family business story around your country that's multi-generational. Please send them our way, ouramericannetwork.org is where you can send them. In times of stress, when small businesses are under assault through tough economic times, you can sort of feel and understand, A, how hard it is to get a business going, and the catastrophe it is when one of these businesses closes. The lives, the families, yeah, the product too, but the world can live without a product. But these folks can't live without these jobs. A beautiful story, another great backstory. The story of McAlaney's Tabasco, here on Our American Story. And we continue here with Our American Stories and with Tony Simmons, who's bringing us the backstory of his own family business that's now been running strong for over five generations. And again, he was the former CEO of McElhinney's Tabasco. Let's return to Tony on one of the trials that they faced in his lifetime. Everybody remembers
1: Hurricane Katrina because it devastated New Orleans so bad. Hurricane Katrina was not an event at Avery Island because we were farther enough west to where we weren't impacted by the storm. But two weeks after Hurricane Katrina, Hurricane Rita came through the western part of Louisiana and we had eight feet, two inches of water at the plant. And the plant floor is at eight feet, six inches. So we had four inches left before we would have had water in a food plant and we'd have been closed for months and months to clean up before we would've been back in operation.
2: They were still forced to close for six working days, which is no small matter for a business trying to care for its families.
1: So after that, we decided to build a protection system around the plant to increase that protection up to 18 feet, six inches. We're almost 14 miles in from the coast here, so We think 18 feet, six inches is a good number. Rita was one of the worst. It was the worst water this area has ever seen in anybody's memory. And it only got to eight feet, two inches. So we now have protection to 18 feet, six inches.
2: But this fortification came at a price, a literal price in dollars and an emotional price in desire.
1: We were gonna put a museum in New Orleans and an office over the museum. And we took the money we had dedicated for that project and instead we built the levee. And then we had to assume we were gonna lose electricity in that case. So we put in a standby power generation system with twin 750 KW generators and a 10,000 gallon diesel fuel tank to run them. Either pump is supposed to be capable of keeping the facility dry, and either generator is capable of running both pumps at once. So Murphy's law, whatever can go wrong will go wrong at the worst possible time. So we have 100% redundancy on our system to try to make sure we don't flood
2: ourselves. This shows just how difficult business can be even 150 years into it, but time and time again, McElhaney's has found strength in one very deep reservoir.
1: We have a very stable workforce, which it also helps the company as well. When I first got here in 2000, we did an award ceremony to award people for their years of service. And I think we had 201 or 202 employees at the time and I totaled up their years of service, and it came out to like 2,165 years of service over those 200 employees. So, you know, we have a very stable workforce that has a lot of institutional knowledge about what we do and how we do it, and that's, that serves us an absolutely good step. We can't compete against the oil field when it comes to wages. When, when the oil field is really going, When things are good in the oil field, they pay way more money than we can afford to pay as a food manufacturer. But a lot of our employees who would be able to get those jobs choose not to do so for a couple of reasons. One is we offer a very competitive package of benefits, so their health care coverage, that type of thing, is going to be equal. What we don't offer is that hourly wage that they could make. But to some extent, that hourly wage, also a lot of our oil and gas business here is offshore, which means they have to be away from their families for extended periods of time. And as you've seen in the last few years, when the oil industry is bad, it's very bad. And we don't lay people off. We don't have large reductions of force. So people that work for us tend to know that, you know, I can make a good living. uh, I can be home with my family every night. I can get a good benefit package. And I won't make as much as I'll make in the oil field. But you know what? I'm not going to be laid off either. So, uh, you know, so it makes a difference. It makes a difference. And that's how we're able to keep really good people working for us.
2: And what also leads employees to want to stay with McElhaney's is that almost every time there's a job opening, there's an opportunity to move up. First, we post
1: internally and our own employees can post for the job. If we have a job open for a line leader and four people uh, post for it, we put together a team to interview those people that consist of the HR manager, the person in charge of that area, and three people that will have to work with that person on that line, actually work for that person. They interview those candidates. They vote. They can vote none of them are a good candidate, that we need to go outside, we need to expand. We don't think any of these people are qualified. But the three people that have to work for them vote first. If they're unanimous on a candidate, that person gets the job. The supervisor and the HR person don't get to vote until after those. Our employees know that. But what happens is we'll fill a line leader position. Then that would probably be filled from somebody who's a partner operator or doing some now that position becomes available. So what happens is almost every job in the company ends up everybody moves up one after another. just step in st- And the only opening to the outside world ends up being at the lowest rung, and usually that's a part-time employee who applies for a full-time position, and they get that, and now we we hire a new part-time person. And it works very well. It's good for morale because people know... You can't just get promoted because you kiss somebody's patoot. That, you know, the people that you're going to have to work with and that know the lay of the land, they're going to get to have a say-so in whether or not you get the job. It's been a great way for us to have good esprit de corps. People know the system. They know how you get promoted here. They also know that the people that work for us are going to get a first shot at the openings.
2: And they also know that they can live at their place of work, this tiny, two-mile-wide Avery Island, if they want to. I've been holding that little pristine pearl of quaintness back from you this whole story. Out of McElhaney's 200 employees, around half of them freely decide to live on Avery Island with Tony and his family.
1: Well, we had to have housing on Avery Island for our workers because... Closest city, to Iberia is seven miles away. And that's too far for people to come and go to work when you go to work on a horse. So we built housing here at Avery Island so we could have workers and them have a place to live. And MacLenny Company still owns about 60 houses on Avery Island that we lease to our employees. And we have about 180 people, I think, that live on Avery Island. Most of them are employees and the family of employees who work for us. And that is a legacy from when we needed to have housing on Avery Island in order to have a workforce. Now, most of the people who live on Avery Island that work for us do it either because they're young and they're trying to save up money so that they can buy a home or they grew up here and just wanna live here or they have small children and they enjoy having the freedom those children can have on Avery Island they can't have in a city or somewhere else because it's pretty hard for a kid to get in too much trouble on Avery Island. You know, if, if you live in our housing, we have a big playground they can go play on. They, they get a lot of freedom. There's a little store. Everybody knows each other. Everybody knows who everybody's kids are. So everybody's kind of watching out for everybody else. And, in, and even though there is traffic on and off the island, it, in some ways it's a gated community because we do monitor who comes and goes off the island. So, you know, children can have a lot more freedom here than they can have in some other places, especially if they move here and the kids get used to that kind of freedom, then the kids don't want to leave anyway. So, But it's very quiet. You can't even get a pizza delivered to Avery Island. You can maybe get one delivered to Avery Island at the, at the toll gate. They might be willing to bring a
0: pizza there, but that's about it. And great job, as always, to Alex Cortez. And a special thanks to Tony Simmons, the former CEO of McElhinney's Tabasco. And my goodness, they're in the business of defending the world against bland food. I love that as a mission statement for a company. And my goodness, they've been doing it for a really long time. Again, those statistics, I've got to hit you with them one more time. Second-generation businesses fail at the rate of 70%. Third-generation business at the rate of 88% and over 95% by the fourth generation fail. And these guys, these folks at McElhinney, fifth generation going strong and still changing the world and changing our palates. By the way, if you have a local family business story around your country that's multi-generational, please send them our way. OurAmericanNetwork.org is where you can send them. In times of stress, when small businesses are under assault through tough economic times, you can sort of feel and understand a, how hard it is to get a business going, and the catastrophe it is when one of these businesses closes. The lives, the families, yeah, the product too, but the world can live without a product. But these folks can't live without these jobs. A beautiful story, another great backstory, the story of McElhinney's Tabasco, here on Our American Story. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show from the arts to sports and from business to history and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. On January 23, 1961, just four days after President John F. Kennedy was sworn into office, a B-52 bomber crashed near Seymour Johnson Air Force Base in North Carolina. Two H-bombs, each 250 times more powerful than the bombs dropped on Japan, marking the end of World War II, were thrown out and fell at a velocity of 700 miles per hour and crashed into Goldsboro, North Carolina. Information about this event was kept classified until 2013. This is the true story of that mission as told by the man who actually dismantled the hydrogen bombs in the aftermath of an accident that could have been the worst man-made disaster in history. Here's Earl Smith with the true story of the Goldsboro Broken Arrow. Well, I graduated
3: high school in 1956 in Hatton, Alabama. And like everybody else around there, the day after you graduate high school, you go to Kalamazoo, Michigan. So I go to Kalamazoo to visit my brother. I had a brother and two sisters live there. And uh, my brother had a neighbor about my age. And so we decided to go downtown on a Saturday morning just to fool around. And so there was a recruiter station. I said, let's go and make that thing. guy think we're going to join. So so it was in the morning. We were down there. So uh, by... Uh, 3 o'clock that afternoon, we was pulling out on a train for the processing station in the Air Force. So anyway, when I went back, my brother and him was about to have a heart attack. He said, you did what? I said, I joined the Air Force. Said, no, you didn't. Yeah, yeah, I did. I got to leave this afternoon. <laughs> and I left. We signed up on a buddy plan. and After that, I never saw my buddy again. So he goes to California uh, for school and I go to um, Texas. And the first school I w- went to is uh, called Munition School, and uh, they give you different tests to see kind of what you qualified for. So this uh, first assignment, they send me to down to Puerto Rico, Ramey Air Force Base. So I go down, down to uh, Puerto Rico there and... Uh, well, I'm doing the job and what the Munition Maintenance uh, calls for, which is basically taking care of the bombs and the ammo in the storage area and loading them on the plane what have you. Well, the Air Force decided to start an airborne alert with nuclear weapons. So we had 33 B-36 bombers down there. So they started what they call Operation Curtain Razor. Every day at 1 o'clock, a plane would leave Ramey, and at the same time, another plane would leave North Africa. There's one always always in the air, and five on the ground, or five days uh, on the ground, was loaded with nuclear weapons, each one, ready to go, and ammunition. So anyway, when I leave Puerto Rico, they formed a new squadron called the 53rd M- MMS, uh, which is munitions Maintenance Squadron. And we wound up at... at uh, Seymour Johnson Air Force Base in North Carolina. Back then, I you know, I, I just figured I'd rather disarm a bomb and eat when I was hungry, you know, but uh, real reckless, you know, that, back then. But but I'm the same kid that when I was growing up, all the little neighbor kids older than me, they taught me into turning over a neighbor's beehive and stuff like that, and I throw was bucket in the well, the old dug wells, and I'd do stuff like that. I was real daring. <laughs> so I guess it stems from back from something like that. I had put in for bomb disposal school, but before you can get in, uh, you have to—I understand—have to have a a grade of nine or above, I believe, from munition man for them to put the money behind you, and it's strictly voluntary. So I received an appointment after a few months to go to uh, EOD school in Indian Maryland. Well, the school—the school, like I say, was was, was extremely hard. Uh, you just literally. Live from day to day and hope you can make it through another day. Because the man, when they're in the indoctrination, first of all, they take you out in this field. It's about about a 20-acre field. And they have everything that's ever been thrown, dropped, or projected from all over the world up to a V-1 and V-2 rocket. It hadn't got to the, the big rockets at the time. And they, a man tells you, he said, gentlemen, before you graduate this school, if you're fortunate enough to graduate this school, you'll be able to walk up to any piece of ordnance out here and tell me what it is, what kind of explosive used in it, what kind of fusing system, and what country's from, and how to disarm it. And everybody punching everybody, yeah, sure, uh-uh, yeah. I mean, it's... But before you leave that school, that's one of the easier things you can do. You are not even got into the to the big big uh, missiles and what have you, but really, the nuclear bombs hadn't entered hadn't entered my mind i i I just I'm never dreaming that I'd have anything dropped in my lap like was dropped in my lap but once i uh I get back to my base after I graduate and uh it happened to be. My night on uh, standby, it was January, it was actually January the 23rd, 1961, when the control tire called me and they said, uh, we have a B-52 coming in, tail number 0187 with fuel leaks in the Bombay area. Well, I knew that was serious because when they go to let the landing gear down, you possibly have sparks, could, you know, create a fire. And I lived off base, so... It had been a snow on the ground. It was about 10 degrees that night, so I got dressed right quick, and I didn't bother to lace my boots on. I just wrapped the strings around them, tied them. But by the time I got to the base, they determined it had crashed off base about 12 miles. So General Moore already had a helicopter waiting for me because the EOD man has a first priority on what they call a broken air. The bomb that fell, was a Mark 39 uh, bomb, which is actually three point eight megatons of explosive. And a lot of people don't know how how much a megaton is. If you take a, a railroad car, coal car, and you load it heaping up with TNT, it would stretch all the way across the United States and back in far Chicago. That's only one point one only one megaton. This was three point eight. And you've been listening to Earl Smith The True
0: Story of the Goldsboro Broken Arrow. You're going to want to hear the rest of this story here on Our American Story. We continue here with our American stories, and we just learned from Earl Smith that just one of the two hydrogen bombs that fell on Goldsboro, North Carolina in 1961 contained 3.8 megatons of explosives. Here's Earl making that statistic understandable to laymen.
3: The experts claimed that it would, uh, with the fallout and everything, if one of them had gone off, it would kill everybody. All the way from New York City all down the eastern seaboard to the tip of the Florida Keys, so pretty much wiping off the the whole eastern seaboard. It was 250 times stronger than what was dropped on on the Hiroshima. Uh, that was only 40 kilotons. So this thing was a, it was just just a monster. So when we get out to the things he had a light under the helicopter, and we're flying around, and I see a parachute. I said, "My God, they're not supposed to be connected. Uh, so I said, "Set me down as close as you can get to it." And the guy said, I don't want to get too close. I said, it don't matter, buddy. you can get me as close as you can." So General Moore tells me, he said, "Now you can't touch that bomb or anything until we' get permission from Atomic Energy Commission." I said, "No, sir, that's not the way it works." And that scared me, so I got off and see what to do. Do and I walked up to the bomb. When I opened that access door and saw that red A, I mean, I just I just turned cold. I mean, it's the scariest thing. I, I was 24 years old, and and as the old saying, "Well, what am I doing here?" You know, that is uh, uh, something I just didn't sign up for. But uh, it was it was uh, it was armed and functioning, and and, and I, I thought. I really thought at that point, when I couldn't find that other mom, I thought I was dying. I, I mean, it's funny what you can tell your your mind. You can tell yourself, and I did. I was pain. I had the the pains in the chest and everything was was right around. I mean, buddy, I, I knew I was going. I was going fast, but I had to get get done what I could. And I happened to look over in the distance. There was about a five mile area that was literally lit up. Uh, with parts of the pine burning. And I saw an ambulance over with the big, big uh, uh, cross on it, and I started to feel better for some reason or other, you know. So, so a few hours later, a few hours, ever general seemed like an air force showing up, and uh, General Moore, who was a uh, General Moore, was one star general, and General Sweeney, who was the the uh, the commander of Eighth Air Force, of which I was assigned to. Anyway, he starts asking me, what all, what did you do first, blah, 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 blah. And I said, well, sir, I'm probably in a lot of trouble. He said, what do you mean? Well, when uh, General Sweeney found out that uh, I had uh, been told by General Moore that I had to get permission from the Atomic Energy Commission, he turned to his uh, aide and said, get General Moore over here. I said, oh, Lord, I'm in trouble. So... General Moore comes up, and the very words he said to General Moore, he said, General Moore, if you don't know this man's down job, I suggest you have him up to your office about two to three times a week for coffee and donut, so he can explain to you what the hell he does. Oh, Lord, my heart just sunk because General Moore is going back to 8th Air Force. And here I'm going to be stuck on base with this general. And I'm a little old airman, first class enlisted man, you know. And he made him look bad, made him look real bad. Nothing ever came of it. But uh, that was I was more scared of that than I was the bomb. I wasn't worried about the bomb. I knew I could take it. <laughs> well, about an hour and a half later, three more uh, the EOD men, a Sergeant Fletcher and a Sergeant uh, Fincher, and uh, sergeant evers they came out in the pickup and we proceeded to disarm the 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 first bomb and uh what happens those bombs are so powerful they have to be let down by parachute because they blow the plane out of the air but they can be set up to 46 hours this can be that long a delay because they don't worry about uh, uh, the Russians coming up and disarming them because if they don't do exactly the steps as they're supposed to be, it'll blow up anyway. So we knew that part too. So you got to do disconnect one CKT wire and then wait three minutes or so, and then you know it's the steps. you have to do it exactly. So that's that's the reason for the parachute. So anyway. We get this bomb taken care of, and I called out uh, the motor pool for them to get a to bring a flatbed truck out so they could get down in, in a lift to get this bomb to go back to the base. In other words, it's it's taken care of. Well, eight and a half hours after this happens, this Lieutenant Revel shows up with a crew from SAC headquarters, Wright Patterson Air Force Base, and he comes marching out there like little Lord Fortinroy, taking in charge. Well the first thing he did was we, we finally found a second bomb and it was well it really took about about three days before we really got to the park because everything had to be done. we had to be real careful digging because we had 92 di- detonators that were live, and those had to be each one had to be counted for and put in a, a little container and got back to the base. <clears throat> well when they got down and dug deep enough, for for the big afterbody part where the parachute was still in, uh, Lieutenant Ravel and his group removed that out of the ground. You have just that afterbody. Well, I was the lowest ranking man (laughs) on there, so I I got the the good duty of getting down in the hole, down in the, uh, the, the muddy water and icy water and everything, reaching down in the hole and pulling up parts of the bomb and identifying uh, what each one was. And uh, I reached down and I got the, the, the uh, nuclear core right up between my legs and I handed it to some, I don't remember who it was, but I told him I probably won't ever have any more kids. And I didn't after that. So once we got all of that stuff out in a tritium bottle, then there wasn't really anything else for them to, you know, that's explosive to where the big, the big diggers couldn't come in. He comes out, and they start digging this, this huge hole, they, they start sinking all kind of jet wells and dry it because it was kind of marshy area in that way. And they did it in, in layers, you know, way of layers they were going. And at one time, it was such a big hole, I saw five bulldozers pulling uh, scrapers in the bottom at one time. Now, that's how big the hole was. I mean, it was just humongous. And uh, they took one of the whales, and they put a, a spigot on it. And uh, the local people wouldn't drink the water. They were you know, scared to death. They wouldn't drink the water. So we got permission to bring three of the old timers around. I can't remember even what their names were. But anyway, I took a a cup and poured some water in it, and I drank it. And I said, well, "You know, would you think I would drink it, if you know, so that kind of." gave him peace of mind. So we never heard any more thing about that. But they uh, told us to, uh, didn't want the public to know what we were looking for. There, there was one a, a part had which weighed about 3,000 pounds, which was uh, uranium-235 and 238. It hit hard pan and kept going. And we were looking for this. That's what all the digging was going to be about. But, uh, they told us to tell everybody, when, they, when a reporter or anybody asked that we were looking for a part to an ejection seat. <laughs> it made, made a lot of—now, that's what we actually had to say. But one one poor man was a sharecropper, and he looks up and sees this humongous parachute with something in it. He thought the Russians were invading, so he grabbed a pound of cornbread and some milk and some blankets. They found him seven hours later under some bushes where they were looking for— uh, Major uh, Shelton, he he was um, something had killed him. The the body, three bodies were were uh, killed, and two bodies were uh, in the wreckage, immediately close to where the bomb was. But uh, five men survived. One man, Captain Maddox, he didn't have an ejection seat, so when everybody else ejected, he said he saw a he saw a hole and he just dove for it, never dreaming he'd get out. So he made it through, and then uh, he hitched a ride somewhere back to the base. He still had a parachute, and the, the gate guard was talking about going to arrest him, thought he'd stole a parachute. But nobody, to my knowledge, has ever escaped jumping out of a jet plane and survived.
0: And you're listening to Earl Smith, and my goodness, what he was up to that day in North Carolina Well, we never knew about it until fairly recently. There's been a book written about it, a big bestseller. It's being optioned as a movie. The Goldsboro Broken Arrow is the thriller by Joel Dobson. The book inaccurately recounts the story from the perspective of Jack Revell. And that's why we're bringing you Earl Smith's account. He was the guy who did the work, not the guy who wanted the credit. And we know the difference between those two when it comes to political theater and showboaters. When we come back, We're going to continue this remarkable story, the story of how one of the world's greatest man made disasters was averted here on Our American Story. We continue here with our American stories, and we love telling you these stories from history because they're important, and my goodness, these are things ordinary Americans do that are, well, they're just extraordinary. And all of our history stories, by the way, are always brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, and you can go to Hillsdale to study all the things that matter in life and all the things that are good in life. Go to hillsdale.edu to learn more. Let's return to Earl Smith, picking up with three other men who helped him dismantle the hydrogen bomb back in 1961, right here in America, and specifically in Goldsboro, North Carolina.
3: They're the real heroes, too. Like I said, they're 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 all dead now. And what had happened before this? Before I found out about all this. Uh, Somehow, this Lieutenant Ravel had found out the other three guys were dead, so he thought I was dead, too, so he proceeded to tell the story like all this, how he took care of that bomb, which was a bunch of crap. I mean, just out and out, blatant lie, because he had nothing to do. That bomb was ready at the time he got shot, come on, was taken care of, ready to go back to the base. And I imagine he was quite shocked when he found out that I was still alive. After I come come up there, and there was a lot of lot of uh, publicity about it, after I got back home, this movie producer called me from Paris, France, and uh, he said he was making a movie called The Cold War, and he loved to tell my story in it. And he said, I'll fly you back up there, and we'll pay all your expenses and everything. And I said, okay. So we I went back up there in, in uh April of that year. Well, the man, who, uh, Kurt Keller, who is a principal person, he he wants everything to be historically correct, and he's the president of the Historical Society for Goldsboro. Well, this lieutenant, when he was telling his story, me or neither three of the other guys were ever mentioned about anything. Never mentioned. Never mentioned. So, that set me on fire about getting everything straight. So that's when I went back. They, they, uh, Kirk Keller invited me up to uh, tell the story. As a matter of fact, uh, when we made this movie, the man is flying over from Paris. The guy who's the uh, director or president of the Historical Society, he said this Lieutenant Ravel was invited to be a part of it too. He said, I'll take bets. He won't show up. And guess what? He didn't. I was sure hoping to hell he would after all that he told and this stuff. And and after three dead men, uh, Sergeant Fincher, Sergeant Fletcher, and Sergeant uh, uh, Evers, with all they'd done, I mean, they they couldn't defend herself. And the way he did that, I, I lost any respect I ever might have had about him. And then when they wrote this book, they wrote this book, uh, I think it ended up being two books. I've only seen one, uh, Broken Arrow over Goldsboro. The man that wrote that, I, I finally had talked to him, and I said, I don't hold you. I I said, uh, first of all, I asked him, where did you get this information? He said, well, from Lieutenant Revell. I said, well, he pulled you a bunch of crap. And then I proceeded to tell him about what really happened. And he said, well, I figured... He was an officer and a gentleman. And I said, "Well, you kind of figured wrong on this one because he 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 wasn't uh, turned out to be uh, other than that." But he never showed up when we went to film this movie. But that's the way it happened. I I, I remember everything just just like it's yesterday. I I don't because when something like that is, is is so vivid, I mean, something it's so important. You just don't forget it. But I, like I say, I never thought. We were told to never ever mention it. They say you don't ever speak of this. You don't ever. You ever. You never. Never ever ever speak of it. So that scared this old boy. So I kind of put it out of my mind. <laughs> you know. Well, first of all, they said something that bothered me for many years because they were telling everybody that all the parts were found, and I knew that piece of uranium two thirty 238, 238, was still in that ground, and I didn't know where it anything it might have moved where it might have finally started uh, doing something to the water supply. And it bothered me for many years about the people living down there. And, and, and uh, But uh, we were told, you know, you, you, you don't talk about this. You don't, you know. But they were telling, the Air Force was telling, we were looking for an ejection seat to see what killed uh, Major Shelton. And they spent a little over a million dollars digging. and I mean, now, a million dollars in 1961 was, was a lot of money, a lot of money. So they they let us know right quick. You, you don't talk about it. You know? And President Kennedy had only been in office four days, and that was his first first uh, uh, speech I think he had to make about our, our press report, I guess. But like I said, I know there were a lot of generals, a lot of generals there, and uh and a lot of media had started showing up until they finally had—well, they, they threatened them with a $25,000 fine. That's what—now they couldn't keep them out, but that's that's what they did. But, it was, boy, they said, don't, you don't say a word about this. Don't say a word about it, you know. So uh, I don't think it—there uh, is. I thought for a long time I worried about it, but because when you think about it— uh, the radiation would have come from, from the core, and we got the core out. But this, this other is buried so deep that uranium, that's where it comes from, out of the ground anyway. So, so uh, it's still on the ground. They do regular testing on it. But in my later years, I, I got in. I mostly selling RVs, up, a dandy RV up in uh, uh, Oxford, and these men came in, and they were EOD men. So I mentioned to one of them, I said, uh, "You know, I I was ex EOD man. I said I worked on a little job up in North Carolina." And he looked and well, looked at you. You worked on that job? I said, "Yeah." I said, I "Sure did." I said, "I was I was on standby. I had it by myself first hour and a half." He said, "You know, it's all over the internet." And I said, "Well, no." I mean, so, boy, I finally got in and got on there, and after reading all that stuff, my blood started boiling all that crap he was telling, you know. And uh, I mean, not, not only just for myself, for the other men that risked their lives. When you go out on something like that, you don't know what's going to happen. And uh, But for him to come in and try to take credit for something somebody else did, it was just not right. No, no way in the world. I, I don't. I don't hold any animosity toward him. He's at the time I, I could broke his neck when I first heard about it. But but uh, you're not supposed to hate. And, and I mean, this the whole thing was just. I mean, just 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 like something something that's never uh, that's never happening. And you've been listening to Earl
0: Smith telling the story of disarming. A hydrogen bomb, no, two hydrogen bombs, that fell on North Carolina back on January 23rd, 1961. This event was kept classified until 2013. And by the way, assuming that everyone had died, Lieutenant Jack Ravel decided to, well, do what we all know people like this. Did what he thought he could do, take advantage of an opportunity and take credit for work done by other men. No surprise that he wasn't showing up wherever Earl Smith showed up. Because, my goodness, Earl would have had detailed memory of disarming that bomb that, let's face it, Lieutenant Jack Revell simply couldn't or didn't have. A great story. And by the way, we always welcome your stories. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org. And this is just a... Look, you don't hear a guy talking about himself in heroic ways. He... He did what he was trained to do. And he did it with a bunch of guys, and a whole bunch of guys died probably trying to get this plane to land safely and not create, again, what would have been perhaps the worst man-made disaster in human history. Earl Smith's story, the story of a man who disarmed a couple of H-bombs in North Carolina back in 1961, the year of my birth, here on Our American Story. This is Our American Stories, and our next story, well, it's about the Wrigley Mansion in Phoenix, Arizona. That's right, we tell stories about buildings, we've told stories about towns, about the toilet, about candy corn, in addition to all the other stories we tell. It was built by William Wrigley Jr., the man who invented, as you can probably guess, Wrigley's chewing gum. Judy Pearson is here to tell us the story of the building, the man who built it, and so much more. Take it away, Judy. In
4: 1891, 30-year-old William Wrigley arrived in Chicago from Philadelphia. With $32, the only money he had to his name, about $900 today, he started the Wrigley Scouring Soap Company. To entice housewives to try his soap, he included a box of baking powder with every purchase. Wrigley was soon shocked to discover that his baking powder was more popular than his soap, so he went into the baking soda business, adding two packages of chewing gum to each can. Again, his gift with purchase was more popular than his primary product, and Wrigley's chewing gum was born, producing spearmint, juicy fruit, and double mint. The business grew, and so did Wrigley's fortune. In 1915, he spent two and a half million dollars telling people that chewing gum aided the digestion and that chewing it was a pleasurable experience. Remember, double your pleasure, double your fun with Doublemint gum? Wrigley was a whirlwind of ideas. He never stopped innovating and reinventing himself, always ready for the next adventure. He bought a minority stake in the Chicago Cubs in 1916 and became the majority owner in 1921. Six years later, he changed the name of the team's ballpark to Wrigley Field. Wondering about the feasibility of shipping his chewing gum via the relatively new airplanes in 1919, Wrigley got the idea to drop packages connected to parachutes. Dealers across the Midwest would then travel to the drop points, taking delivery of their merchandise. That same year, Wrigley bought the Santa Catalina Island Company. As had been the case with Wrigley's own ventures, the company came with a gift with purchase. The entire island, located off the coast of Los Angeles. With the dream of creating an enterprise that would help employ local residents, Wrigley improved the island with public utilities, new steamships, a hotel, a casino, and extensive plantings of trees, shrubs, and flowers. By that time, Wrigley had ownership, full or partial, in 15 different companies around the country. It was Arizona that next captured his heart. He bought a few mines in the state, but real estate held a special interest. Wrigley created a syndicate with three other men to purchase 150 acres along famed Camelback Road. The purchase price was $100,000, a million and a half today, although today it's worth many times more than that. The land was adjacent to the newly opened Biltmore Hotel, in which Wrigley was also heavily invested. The Tsar of Chewing Gum owned four very palatial homes, but in 1930, he began building something special on the 100-foot high La Colina Solana, the Sunny Hill. It would be an anniversary gift for Wrigley's wife, Ada, and oh, what a home it was to be. The Mission Revival Mansion would be nearly 17,000 square feet. Set on 10 acres, it would have a 360-degree view of the valley of the sun below. The 30-foot-high foyer rotunda would be adorned with gold leaf and hand-painted ceiling. And the floor below was laid with tiles made in Wrigley's Catalina Island estate kiln. The rest of the home had pegged oak floors covered in beautiful hand-woven Spanish rugs. The oak Steinway grand piano, to be placed in the living room, was one of only two in existence, doubling as a player piano. And all of the chairs throughout the mansion were carefully crafted lower than normal, to accommodate Ada's petite frame. Every doorknob, hinge, window fixture, and switch plate in the mansion would be brass, with the exception of those in the family bedrooms, they were sterling silver. The mansion took three years to reach its splendor. It was Wrigley's plan to spend the early months of 1932 there, but a few weeks after arriving in January, he was stricken with acute indigestion and died at the age of 70 in his bedroom atop the sunny hill. The Wrigley Mansion, as the locals called the home, remained a much-loved family destination. Ada suffered a stroke there, dying in 1957, and then in 1973... The beautiful mansion was sold like a stray dog she passed from one ill-fated owner to another a developer who died of a heart attack a savings and loan caught up in the 1980s scandal another developer who filed for bankruptcy but prior to each failed ownership her lovely rooms and grounds welcomed business conferences dozens of brides and grooms and celebrity parties and then the end of the line arrived for the Wrigley Mansion. In 1992, rumors reported that this graceful landmark would be demolished for condo construction. Enter another intriguing millionaire capitalist with a love of beautiful things. Geordie Hormel's family had founded Hormel Foods, based in Austin, Minnesota. The company's most famous product was the canned meat, Spam. Geordie loved music, owning a music studio in Los Angeles and playing multiple instruments. As a composer, he had written a number of well-known television theme songs and once recorded with his buddy Frank Zappa. Like William Wrigley, Geordie eventually found his way to Phoenix, where he bought the largest home in the state of Arizona. And not long after that purchase, he heard about the proposed fate of the mansion on the sunny hill. He called a realtor friend and requested a showing. In the first few minutes of his Wrigley Mansion tour, Geordie was transported back to his childhood, and the Wrigley's home reminded him of his own childhood home. Having turned that into a supper club, where he entertained guests with his accomplished piano playing, he knew he could do the same thing with this mansion. The beautiful stray dog won Geordie Hormel's heart. He bought it immediately. Geordie and his wife Jamie began restoring the mansion and opened it as a private club. Geordie entertained Sunday brunch guests on the Steinway Grand still in the living room. He played Happy Birthday every Sunday because, as Geordie used to say, every day is someone's birthday. The family enjoyed the mansion as much as the public did, The Hormel children would sneak napkins out of the dining room and slide down the hill on them, and the pastry chefs could always be charmed into giving them treats. They celebrated birthdays and holidays at the mansion, and the Hormels even renewed their wedding vows there. When Jordy died in 2006, Jamie became the mansion's proprietor. Continuing what her husband had begun, she has made it a world-class destination. She's brought the kitchen into the 21st century while lovingly updating rooms to former grandeur. The spectacular wine cellar is well stocked, an outstanding Phoenix chef is at the helm in the kitchen, and the national awards keep rolling in. The Wrigley Mansion, and the Wrigleys in general, hold a special place in my heart. My mother was a die hard and lifelong Chicago Cubs fan the baseball team William Wrigley bought in 1921. Living in Phoenix, I discovered the magical charm of the Wrigley Mansion shortly after the Hormels reopened it as a private club and restaurant. I took my father there for dinner when he came to Phoenix on a business trip. He was so taken with the history and the views that when he returned home, he and my mother hatched the idea of a surprise 40th birthday party for me to be held in the mansion on the sunny hill. Every time I walk into that majestic foyer, I'm reminded of that magical night in 1993 when Happy Birthday was played for me on that famed Steinway in the living room. My mother died just a few weeks after my memorable Wrigley Birthday Gala and was never able to visit the Czar of Chewing Gum's beautiful Phoenix mansion. But I know she would chuckle at one particular detail. Through all the owners and renovations, one room remained just as William Wrigley created it. To the left of the hand-carved double front doors is a tiny closet with a small table and a telephone switchboard. Vintage, of course. Today, it's assumed the butler used the room to call family members when visitors arrived. It has a unique silver sheen on the walls and the faint odor of mint. It is the gum room. It is wallpapered with foil from my favorite Wrigley chewing gum. Double mint.
0: And what a beautiful story by a beautiful storyteller. And we're talking about Judy Pearson, and she's a published author. And no, she's not John Krisherman. She's not a household name. But we love bringing you people who we think are terrific writers, telling terrific stories about places or people, this time the Wrigley Mansion. And my goodness, if you ever get a chance, go there. Have a lunch or a brunch. Bring a daughter or bring a son. Bring the wife. Bring the husband. It's just a beautiful place, and everyone can afford to go. Rich, middle class, not so middle class. Scrape together a few bucks, have a beautiful brunch, or a tea. And by the way, it's a lot like the Broadmoor in Colorado Springs, a beautiful place to take a family or entertain people or have a wedding. It's like the Biltmore in North Carolina, and there's a place I'm sure near you like it. The Wrigley Mansion story here on Our American Story.